Nahum is our study tonight. About a week or so ago, one of the families in our church told me about a questionnaire that their high school student had been given to answer by one of their teachers. It seemed invasive and at least in some parts totally inappropriate. I won't go into the particular questions. I will say several of them were of a rather intimate, personal, sexual nature. Uh, This was geography class, by the way. (laughs) I selected and copied a chunk of it. Have you ever done that? Do you know that you can like select a large chunk of something with uh, quotation marks at either ends, and then you'll find out where people stole it from? Uh, or plagiarized it from on the internet and stuff. And so I thought, well, where did this come from? This, this, um, it sounded like it wasn't made up. And so I did that. And I found out it's actually a questionnaire that's been developed to allow video gamers to create new fantasy characters for their role-playing adventures. And so it's like an inventory of questions you answer to create a fantasy uh, character. And you go into all these crazy uh, dimensions of their, their personal life. So it wasn't only age inappropriate, it was totally inapplicable to a high school student in that it was never intended as an inventory of adolescent beliefs and behaviors. It wasn't, in, it wasn't being used even for what it was intended for. It was, in a word, stupid. But was it also sinister? Ah, there we go, crazy Christians seeing the devil in everything, trying to shelter our kids. To which I say, you bet at least to the sheltering part anyway. We're going to talk a little about kids tonight, touch on them in the book of Nahum. You might even call it a sort of children's story. God had sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to announce its destruction. As a result of Jonah's preaching, the population of the entire city turned to the Lord in genuine repentance and faith, and God spared the city. As Jonah sat complaining to God about having spared the city, God said to him, this is from Jonah 4.11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? The 120,000 persons mentioned were the children in Nineveh. God, there's a, I'll tell you afterwards if you want, there's kind of a family joke about this passage, but I, I don't have time to go into it right now, and I'm too embarrassed anyway. But anyway... Uh, God had compassion upon the children. Now, Nahum picks up the story of those children and their descendants. His book is written about 150 years after the great revival under Jonah. The parents were saved, but by the third generation after the revival, their descendants were as wicked as ever. Nahum announced the total and complete destruction of Nineveh. If you're saved... You're going to want your children and their children after them to be saved. It's not automatic. Your children are free moral agents who must choose for themselves to receive or reject Jesus Christ. Still, you can and you should exert a powerful influence in their decision to receive or reject Jesus as you rehearse your own relationship with the Lord to them. You all know people, don't you, who say that, you say, well, are you going to go to church? Not, not Christians, non-Christians. Say, so you, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to let my kids decide for themselves. Yeah, yeah that's stupid. You, you, you don't let kids decide for themselves. You don't let them decide for themselves if they're going to walk out into the middle of the street, do you? Mommy, I want to go out and play. Decide for yourself where you want to play. You play in the fenced yard. You go next door where they raise pit bulls, or you can walk in the middle of the street. It doesn't matter to me. Just do whatever, because you are a free moral agent. Do whatever you want. When it comes to their spiritual life, people think, well, you know, whatever. And so we, we do want to influence our kids. 
We do want to shelter them. Now, in chapter 1, Nahum suggests an illustration to help parents get a handle on sharing Jesus with their kids. It's probably not how he intended it, but I think it, it comes off that way. It's in verse 7. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. God was understood to be a stronghold. Nahum drew this from a historical incident. Look at verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth the one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now, this one who conspired against the Lord and who comes forth plotting evil, the wicked counselor, this is a reference to the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital city. The words used here would remind the Jews of the story of the Assyrian siege against Jerusalem that's recorded in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. After the Assyrians had destroyed 42 outlying cities, they encamped against Jerusalem. King Hezekiah of Judah sought the Lord, and this is one of the great stories of the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, one angel, the angel of the Lord, slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers as they slept. The rest of the army thought it was a good idea to withdraw, and they would not rise up a second time, not against Jerusalem, uh, as, at least. Nahum was a witness to that siege and to the miraculous deliverance God wrought. He wrote shortly after that event. And so the picture I get is the Assyrian army encamped around Jerusalem, about to destroy it, the Jews safe inside because Jerusalem was God's stronghold. The picture you can draw from history is this. Just as Jerusalem proved to be a stronghold against Assyria, so your salvation is a spiritual stronghold against the world. Scripture identifies the world around you as this present evil world. You're warned to avoid being corrupted by the world around you. The Apostle John said, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There is a certain warfare mentality that you must adopt in your walk with the Lord. You are at war with the world, whether you want to be or not. A lot of times people say, well, you, you know, you act like there's a conspiracy in these things. There is a satanic conspiracy, you understand that. So when, when people are doing things, I'm, we're not saying, as Christians, we don't believe that people are getting together and, ha and having secret meetings about how they can serve the devil. They don't need to because the Bible says they're already taken captive by the devil to do his will. They're in the world and they're influenced by the world and, and he, he doesn't really need to draw them into a conspiracy. But behind the scenes, there is, of course, a satanic conspiracy against uh, the word of God, against the people of God. And it pops up from time to time, uh, and, and we are at war against this. Questionable questionnaires are an example. I mean, it may not be the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world, but it's just one of those things. You know, you get up in the morning, and you send your kids to school, and you think everything's going to be great, and the next thing you know, they're saying, Mom, you know, do I have to answer this question? It, it asks me if I'm still a virgin. And what class? Geography. Probably not. And it, it, you know, created a stir. Uh, and, and, and so those are the kinds of things that are happening. It may seem harmless enough, or you may not think too much harm is done in a teacher handing out such a thing. But as I think back on my own growing up, 
I now wish more things I experienced had been filtered for me so I wouldn't have them in my mind, as it were. Uh, there are just a lot of experiences that I had that, um, you know, just I, I really should have been sheltered from things and not exposed to certain things, and I would have been better off for it. God's salvation is your stronghold. You have his presence and the privileges of a personal relationship with him. These turn your enemies away and fill you with joy. You want your children to understand the safety and satisfaction of the stronghold as opposed to the subtle strategies of a world that is definitely seeking to corrupt them. Your kids need to know that the world is their enemy and that salvation is their stronghold. And they need to understand that salvation is a stronghold of the protection and peace of a personal relationship with God, not the prison of a rules and regulations religion. Now, having said that, inevitably your Christian children are going to accuse you of being overly protective, you're sheltering them too much, their friends are all having a lot more fun than they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, all I'm saying is make sure you have a real, genuine, happy, joyous relationship with the Lord based on uh, the liberty of grace and not the legalism uh, you know, that some people fall into, and then set the boundaries that the Lord wants you to set. And, and um, if your children think you're being too restrictive, uh, they'll get over it one day. And, and uh, uh, you know, better err on the side of uh, boundaries than on no boundaries. Now, we get into chapter 2, and that's a vivid graphic account of the final days of Nineveh. We'll just read a portion of it. Verse 1 says, he who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. These are our sar uh, all sarcastic comments because there's really no hope for Nineveh at this point. Let's skip verse 2 for a moment. Verse 3 says, the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another. Uh, in the broad roads, they seem like torches, they run like lightning. Already their shields were red with blood, their chariots looked like flames of fire as they dashed here and there in the streets. The soldiers found it easy to slaughter the defenseless citizens of Nineveh. Verse 5, he remembers his nobles, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are open and the palaces dissolved. It is decreed she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, the knees shake, much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color." History bears out Nahum's prophecy. Uh, the river coming into uh, Nineveh was dammed up and then released to make a breach in the walls. Many attempted to flee. Most were killed or captured. The city was looted. I wanna, it's a great study, uh, you know, if you're interested in history, to, to look at all these supposedly unconquerable, impregnable cities and to figure out how they actually destroyed them. You know, whether they dried up the water coming in, or in this case, they dammed it up and then released it to destroy the walls. Uh, there's always a way to breach the, the defenses. And yet, uh, people never figure that out, and they, they get uh, cocky and proud in, uh, and arrogant in thinking that they're impregnable. 
uh, and the Medes and the Persians came up against Nineveh and they, they sacked it. As you read the closing verses of chapter 2, bear in mind that the symbol of Assyria was the ferocious lion. Verse 11, where's the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. As I said, it was the Medes and the Babylonians who were the instrument of Nineveh's destruction, but God was the author of it. God holds nations accountable. Uh, he raises up nations and he tears nations down and he holds nations accountable. Uh, and and um, all of these nations at one point or another went beyond boundaries of decency and, and morality that the Lord would have set. And uh, he found that he had to tear them down and destroy them. The Medes and the Babylonians took over and then, of course, they had their day and, and then they were destroyed as well. Now look back at verse 2. It says, The Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The Jews had split into two separate kingdoms, as you know. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. The Assyrians had already completely overrun and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They had emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The southern kingdom, however, was spared. God had been their stronghold against the enemy. Nahum uses this to look far beyond to the end of human history and prophecy, uh, and he sees in the end times that God will restore Israel and Judah as one nation under God. He looks forward to the future millennial kingdom after Jesus Christ has returned to the earth. You know, we seem to talk about these things an awful lot, don't we? The rapture, the coming of the Lord, the millennial kingdom. That's because the Bible talks about them an awful lot. I mean, that's, that's what Nahum is referring to. All of a sudden, these prophets, I love it in, in Peter's writings, he said the prophets, they desired to look into these things. They prophesied and they didn't know what they were talking about because in mid-sentence, you know, they were talking about a, something that's still future to us, the return of the Lord and the establishing of his kingdom. Think of it this way. Nahum wrote after the Assyrian army had been turned away from Jerusalem, but he wrote before Assyria had been defeated. The Assyrians were still a significant enemy. In a sense, even though they had temporarily been checked, the Jews were still surrounded by them. And so Nahum tells his people to look beyond those present circumstances and see that Nineveh is going to fall. As long as they remained in the Lord's spiritual stronghold, walking with the Lord, they had nothing to fear from their enemy. This was Balaam's advice to Balak. You remember in the Old Testament, another great story, as uh, Balaam is contracted to curse the children of Israel, and he tries, but he can't. And in the end, he says, there's nothing you can do to destroy these people as long as they're walking with their God. If you want them destroyed, they have to be destroyed from within. Get them to sin, and God will do the work for you. And so Balak sends prostitutes down into the camp, the Moabite women. The Israelite men start having sexual relations with them. And um, a plague breaks out in the camp until Phinehas grabs a javelin and kills an Israelite man and a Moabite woman as they're uh, engaged in sexual intercourse. And then God stays uh, the plague because his holiness is satisfied. And so Nahum is saying, look, we're still surrounded by the Assyrian. I mean, God, God killed a bunch of them and they withdrew, but we're always going to be surrounded by the Assyrians, as it were. But we need not fear as long as we're walking with the Lord.
The world around us, this present evil world, has fallen and it's going to fall totally. Instead of the book of Nahum, we have the whole Bible. We have many passages that describe the world, the world as fallen and going to fall. As long as we remain in the Lord's spiritual stronghold, we have nothing to fear from the world. Your kids must be taught to look beyond what they see in the world. They must be taught that the world in its splendor is really fallen and it's going to fall farther and that a glorious future kingdom on earth and in heaven is what's in store for them. In chapter 3, Nam gives you the reasons Nineveh was fallen, or some of them. He lists some of her sins. Beneath her splendid and powerful and affluent exterior were three things that undermined her. Violence, harlotry, and sorcery. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. There's so much gross stuff I could list regarding the violence of the bloody Assyrian Empire. Here's a short description of what they did to some of their victims or their enemies. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, they cut off hands and feet, ears and noses, gouging out eyes, lopping off heads, and then binding them to vines or heaping them up before city gates. Captives could be impaled or flayed alive through a process in which their skin was completely removed. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings movies, these guys sound like orcs, if you ask me. They, they like, you know, they're just brutal. They're just eating people and killing people. It's just violent. For their violence, they themselves would be violently overrun. Verse 2, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Nahum described a culture that commits violent, heinous acts, and they themselves were overcome by violence. Are we a culture that commits violent, heinous acts? A few weeks ago, I don't know if it was here on Wednesday or on a Sunday morning, we talked about violence in uh, you know, America and all that, but um, not just violence that is happening, but, but actually you know, committing violence as a culture, and I would say that we do. This description of a serious violence against her victims would pale in comparison to the violence of abortion against its innocent victims. I don't want to go any further except to point out that God brought violence against those who practiced violence. Violent always become the victim. Your kids need to be taught the sanctity of human life. They need to be taught to look beneath a world that not only allows but even encourages abominable horrors. Verse 4, because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. I like the King James Version better. It says, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot. We could go in a lot of different directions with this. Uh, I would say that what used to be pornography is now considered normal. Um, It's still pornography. It's still whoredoms, but it is well-favored, largely because it's become mainline and celebrities are involved with it. I don't need to examine the whoredoms of our culture. I only point out that when they exist in a culture, God acts in judgment against that culture. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. Images that are now commonplace in our society are still shameful and filthy, And so your kids need to be taught modesty and they need to be protected as much as possible from filth and vulgarity. When, uh, maybe uh, I'm probably going out on a limb here and somebody will get mad at me, but when did Las Vegas become a family destination? 
There was a while there when they really went after families, you know, and, and I think everybody bought it. They're like, hey, Las Vegas is family friendly. And uh, yeah, it, it's not. I, 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 you know, you might have to go there, but uh, you shouldn't want to go there. And there's lots of places like that. Verse four, because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Sorcery can be translated witchcraft or enchantments or evil magic. It's from a root word meaning to whisper a spell. All I'll say about this is be very careful what you allow your, to influence your kids. If there's any question about something involving or promoting sorcery or witchcraft, then don't let your kids get into it. And this is different. You know, we're not talking about areas of liberty here tonight and what a Christian can or can't do and what you should watch or shouldn't watch. I'm not going to argue with anybody about Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings. I already referenced the Lord of the Rings, and you're thinking, you hypocrite. Here, there's a wizard in that. <laughs> We're not talking about that. It's different when it comes to your children. You might want to, there's some things you might not want to expose your children to that maybe you have a liberty to uh, be exposed to. Maybe you don't have a liberty. All I'm saying is that kids, you know what I found out about your kids? They can catch up when they're adults because of all the things John Corson talked about. MP3s. (laughs) Man, it's like, the MP3 is like an ancient technology. It's like a cassette tape almost, you know. Poor John, he's trying to be so, he's trying to be so contemporary. People listening to their MP3s, you know. But, uh, you know, your kids can catch up. Just if there's any question, uh, you know, just say, hey, that's, that's what they invented DVDs for in your 18th birthday. You can, you know, have a, you know, a marathon of all these things, whatever, you know, when you're on your own, you're on your own. But in the meantime, let's be a little bit careful with our kids. Um, Nineveh was in every sense typical of the world in which believers find themselves. It was wealthy and powerful and splendid, but it was filled with violence and whoredom and sorcery. So are we too conspiratorial as Christians? Are we too weird when it comes to sheltering our kids? Well, since we were talking about something that happened in the school system, let me give you some quotes um, from some of our favorite communists. Uh, Karl Marx wrote, The education of all children from the moment that they can get along without their mother's care shall be in state institutions at state expense. His student, Lenin, concurred, saying, give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. And our friend Joseph Stalin understood that too, and he said, education is a weapon whose effect depends on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Uh, And so I say to you parents, shelter on. Uh, (laughs) All right. 